I direct your attention to Psalm 130. Hear the word of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. Oh Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Would you bow with me in prayer? Gracious Lord, we call out to you this morning asking for your Holy Spirit to be present and evident among us. We confess, Father, that we are guilty of putting our hope in the wrong places. We are surrounded by voices, images, ideas that would distract us from seeking you. We confess this, O Lord, and we ask for your help. We ask that according to Romans 12, you would transform us and renew our thinking. Change us, O God, so that our hope will be in you and we will wait with confidence. Work according to your will within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is absolutely no doubt that music is an integral part of worship. We've spent a lot of time this morning as we have gathered to worship in, in singing. We have listened to songs. We have sung congregationally. Music is an important part of worship. It's interesting that in the book of Colossians and Ephesians, when Paul writes about being filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the things that he says is this singing with one another so a mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit is we open our mouths and we sing together songs of corporate worship but you know what worship and music is not just a part of corporate worship it's a part of our individual worship I think that if I took a survey this morning of how many of you listen to music either getting ready to come here or driving here, you turned on the radio and you listened to some Christian music. I think a lot of us would probably say yes. I have very fond memories as a little boy in the 70s when we were getting ready to go to church. Mom and dad would turn on to a TV station out of Knoxville and we would listen to the Mole's Singing Convention. I see some heads nodding. You remember Brother Mole. Music was just a part of getting ready for worship. Today, some of you may have listened to songs like, Your Love Awakens Me. You may have listened to a different arrangement of an old hymn, Oh Glorious Day. You may have listened to, This is Amazing Grace. Or walking in, you may have caught yourself singing the old but familiar hymn, Victory in Jesus. Music and singing is a part of preparation for worship. 
This is nothing new. If you look at the text I read earlier, you'll notice that there's a prescript just before verse 1 begins. It says, a song of ascents. That prescript is written before the majority of the psalms in the latter part of the Psalter. That's because these are songs that the pilgrims would sing as they were making their way up to Jerusalem. As they went in caravan, they would go and they would sing these psalms as part of a corporate preparation for worship. Now the interesting thing is that you look at these songs of ascents, many of them begin with suffering. They don't gloss over the fact that in coming to worship there is brokenness in their lives. There's pain that they're carrying. But the pain is not driving them away from worship. To the contrary, they are coming to worship recognizing their need for healing. It's the very opposite of what happens today when many of us come to worship and we, we cover up any pain that we have because we don't want to risk being vulnerable. We don't want to risk being open. But the Psalms take a very different route in their vulnerability about their need for God. And Psalm 130 is one of the best known of the songs of ascents. Many places it's known by its Latin name based on the first phrase of verse 1 where it says, Out of the depths, de profundus. To be profound is to be in the depths. Verse 1, the psalmist cries out, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And it's interesting that the depths here at this point are not identified. Now later, the depths out of which the psalmist sings will come into clarity. But right now it's very general. Out of the depths I am calling unto you because all of us can relate with that. He begins with the common denominator that all of us share is that in some way we have and are experiencing brokenness. If you are in the depths right now because of a broken relationship, you can sing along with this song. If you are in the depths because of sickness, you can sing with this psalmist. If you are in the depths because of grief, this psalm is written for you to join in its song. Because no matter the depths in which you find yourself swimming right now, the same truth applies. And that is the necessity of calling out unto God. The focus of verse 1 is not making a specific request. It is simply saying, oh Lord, hear me. You see, this is not a nice little memorized prayer given by rote. This is a psalmist pouring his voice out of a broken heart saying, Lord, here I am out of the depths, out of the reality of my pain. I am crying to you. And notice how he identifies the God to whom he calls. I draw your attention to verse 1 where the Lord is first recognized. And notice the first Lord is written in small capital letters. That is a way that we are being told that that is directed toward Yahweh. Now it's the same God, different names. The name Yahweh goes back to Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is at the burning bush. And God speaks out of the bush and says, Go and bring my people, lead them out of slavery. Moses says, Who should I tell them sent me? And God answers with one word in the Hebrew. He answers with Yahweh. It's translated, I am who I am. I will be who I have been. It's a being verb. And it's a verb that comes to co recognize, to communicate the covenant we have with God. 
Yahweh is a relational name for God. It's a way that God communicates. I am not distant from you. I am present. I am here. I am with you. I have entered into covenant with you. I am not distant and far removed from your suffering. I am with you in it. So he calls out to the God who is there. But notice the change that takes place in the first phrase of verse 2. O Lord. Now notice the difference. This name for Lord is in lowercase letters. It's a different title. It's the word Adonai. It means master, king, Lord in the sense of one who reigns. So we have two ideas of God, two truths about God, that God is Yahweh. He is. He will be. He is with His people. He will be with His people. He is near unto you in your suffering. And on the other hand, the sovereign God who is transcendent over all reality, who reigns, who rules, who at His voice the worlds come into being. And this juxtaposition is held all throughout the Psalms. In verse 3, if you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? In verse 5, I wait for the Lord. In his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord. We know that as we call out to God, he is the God who is near and present. He is both king and comforter. He reigns and is in relationship through us. So it's a reminder that the God to whom we call out to in prayer is not distant. He is present with us. Is that not the hope of Jesus in Matthew 1, 23 where he said, You shall call his name Emmanuel, for God is with us. But this God who is with us is no weakling limited by time nor space. He is the God of all creation, able to do all things. The God who is near and the God who is over is the same God who has redeemed us through Jesus Christ. And the focus of the prayer is this, God hear me. The psalmist does not doubt God's ability to act. For he knows that if God hears, God acts. Bend your ear toward me, O God. You see, there are times that we will struggle with that reality. When you and I are in the depths, there will be those moments where we wonder, God, do you hear me? Are you there, O Lord? I've been praying, God, and I don't feel like you're hearing my prayers. This is a reminder that God is attentive. Jesus told a parable of a widow who was going through a difficult time. She was being treated unfairly and so she sought a judge to right the wrongs that she was experiencing. The judge turned a deaf ear to her. He didn't want to hear about her problems, but she kept coming back to the judge, back to the judge, back time and time and time and time again, till finally the judge says, this woman's driving me crazy. I'm going to act on her behalf. Now, many times I've heard that parable preached and the preacher says, so keep on praying, keep on praying. Tug at the robes of God till you get his attention. Hear me clearly, that is not the point of that parable. The point is one of contrast. Jesus, in speaking of that parable, says, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him night and day? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice speedily. The point is that God is not like the judge who has to be cajoled and begged into acting. God is attentive to the cries of his people. 
So you have a God who is willing to hear, who says, I'm available. We have troubles. We experience suffering. So the question comes, what do you do when you suffer? What do you do in the midst of your depths? Some people become angry at God. Rather than crying out to God, they curl up their fist and say, how dare you? Because they operate under the premise that God owes us something with the idea that suffering could not be a part of God's plan, surely not. Others, instead of becoming angry at God, they simply harden their hearts to God. Some of you may fall in that category. You're here, but your heart's far from Him. Suffering's hardened it. And you would never let anybody know that. No, no, no. I mean, we know, we're, we're in the South. We know the right things to say at church. Amen. Bless their heart. God be the glory. Come on now. But inside, your heart does not match the words of your mouth. Because you're wounded. And rather than risk letting someone think you're not a good Christian, you keep that hurt bottled up. Others simply don't play the game. They quit it altogether. They run the other way from God. They seek something temporary to, to calm and to take away the pain that they're experiencing in life. So my encouragement to you is to follow the example of this psalmist and call out to God for mercy. Lord, hear my cry. Call out to Him even if you don't feel like calling out to Him. Call to Him even if you are angry to say, Lord, I don't understand what's happening. Call out to Him even if your words pour out of your mouth and a groan. Call out for mercy. Mercy is the undeserved help that we need from God. The truth is that all of us need mercy. All of us. Now, I hope in every sermon that I preach that I am able to give a dose of reality. But this morning, I want to call attention to our dose of reality. This is the reality. That little red circle on the screen represents what you and I have control of. Notice it's very small. That's what we can control. Now this next circle is everything we can't control. What I'm finding is that that red circle keeps getting smaller and smaller. And you know what? That's true for all of us. But we often live under the reality that those two circles are switched. The blue is what I'm in control of. I can handle it. I have the strength. I have the power. I can pull myself up by the bootstraps. The red is what I have no control over. The reality is that we control very, 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 very little in this world. And the reason that prayerlessness is found among God's people is that we operate under the illusion that we are in control. We operate under the idea that we have everything together. You see, we need God's mercy. No matter what the circumstance may be. I'm afraid that the old hymn has gotten it wrong. Showers of blessings. Mercy drops round us are falling, but oh, for the blessings we plead. I'm sorry, but I need God's mercy. That is God's blessing. The psalmist cries out, 
be merciful to me. And verses 3 and 4 now bring into clearer focus the reason he calls for God's mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Now we see a little clearer. This psalmist is struggling with sin or the consequences of some sin. Now hear me clearly. This is not to say that there is a direct correlation between sin and sickness, sin and problems. See, we operate in a world that believes you do good things, good things happen. You do bad things, bad things happen. That's not the reality. The Gospel of John, a blind man born at birth, blind, is brought to Jesus. The Pharisees asked Jesus, all right, Jesus, who sinned? Did this man sin or did his parents sin that he was born blind? Something had to happen. Jesus says, neither. He was born blind for the glory of God. See, there's not always a direct correlation. Sin and sickness follow one another. But we can say this. The brokenness that is in our world is due to the fall. Maybe not a direct sinful action that we have committed, but all brokenness in the world comes from the fact we live in a world broken by rebellion against God. Broken relationships, broken dreams, broken bodies all come from a fractured relationship with God. So our hope is this in verse 3 that God will forgive if God marked iniquities. In other words, if God held on to them. If he said, I'm highlighting that iniquity because there is no way I'm forgiving that one. He says, who of us could stand in God's presence? Who of us would have any hope if God refused to forgive? We would be like corn stalks in a hurricane. But the good news of the gospel is that God does forgive. One of the verses that's often quoted in times when we do not understand what God is doing is Isaiah 55. God's ways are not our ways. And while God's plans are not our plans always, the context of this verse is not dealing with God's providential workings. He says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. That God will have compassion on the wicked man. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. You know why? We are not prone to forgive. We are prone to hold grudges. God says, my ways are not yours. I am compassionate. I am gracious. So when our hearts close to forgiveness, God's is open. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds over the sin. That's the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the songs that's become an anthem, not only of the church, but also by many in the world, is the great hymn by John Newton, Amazing Grace. We need to remember the man who wrote that song was indeed one who knew of God's grace. This is what is found upon his tombstone in England. John Newton Clerk, once an infidel, infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa. Newton was not a good man. He served as a mate on a slave ship. And one night he decided to win the favor of the crew by opening the captain's grog and getting the crew drunk. Needless to say, the captain was not thrilled with this. He threw John Newton overboard and had pity on him. Instead of letting him drown, he pierced his side with a harpoon and drew him back into the ship and put him in the hold of the with the slaves. And it was there in the hold with the other slaves where Newton himself became a slave that he remembered the lessons his mother taught him about God's grace.
and was converted. He said, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Amazing grace has become an anthem for the church, but there's often more to it than we realize. Now, I'm a man that likes to know his limitations, so I'm asking Julie to come up on the stage and help me with this illustration at the piano. Were you to look in your hymn book, you would see at the bottom where Amazing Grace is written that it says lyrics by John Newton. But the melody, the melody is a different story. No one knows who wrote the melody. Julie, would you play Amazing Grace for us? had shown the camera on Julie's hands, you would have noticed something. That tune was played using only the black keys. It not, did not use any of the white keys. It used what is called the pentatonic scale, five notes. The tune for Amazing Grace is found on the black keys alone in five notes. Here's what hymnists think. Those five notes, the pentatonic scale, are the notes that make up African-American spirituals. It's believed that that tune, the tune by which we sing Amazing Grace, was a lament sung by slaves captured in Western Africa. And then in the hold of that ship where John Newton was chained, he heard that tune sung as a cry unto God that they would be delivered. And he took that tune and put it to grace. Julie, play it again. Sing with me. Sing That is the power of God to take our lament and to transform it by His grace and mercy. That is the power of God to take that which chains us and to use it for His glory. That is the power of God that is not limited by the chains of our past, but pours out compassion upon compassion upon compassion upon us. And notice the result of grace in verse 4. With you there is forgiveness. God will forgive and restore that you may be feared. People often wonder, how can I know if I have received the grace of God? It's very simple. What is your attitude toward God? What we see in the New Testament as well as the Old is this. Once you have received God's grace, His mercy, and received forgiveness of sins, your, your life will be marked by gratitude. 
People who are forgiven of their sins should be the most gracious people upon the face of the earth. Gratitude should mark the attitude of the believer. People say, how can I look for assurance? I would ask you, is your life marked by gratitude? A thankfulness. But it doesn't stop there. It moves on to the next thing, to reverence. You see, Paul wrestled with this question in Romans. If God has forgiven me, why should I not go ahead and sin all the more if grace is free? And Paul says, you have died to sin. You no longer belong to sin. Now, sin is no longer your master. God is. Serve Him. Live in reverence to Him. Grace begets gratitude, which begets reverence. That's why he says, but with you there's forgiveness to the result that you will be reverenced. You see, the grace of God begins to move us forward. Notice the change taking place in the psalmist. Lord, hear my cry. Hear, O Lord, my plea for mercy. Now he moves to verses 5 and 6 where with confidence he states what he will do. I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. The psalmist now comes to a firm resolve about what he will do. He doesn't say that the depths have now gone, gone away. He says rather, I will wait and I will hope. Now we must be clear, waiting and hoping require an object. You wait for something. If you were to be walking in a park and you walk and you notice that there's a, a man that's seated on a bench. You come back an hour later and he's still there and you sit down next to him and strike up a conversation. What are you doing, sir? Well, I'm waiting. Really? What are you waiting for? Nothing, just waiting. Say, man, get a life. You don't just wait for nothing. You're waiting for something. So the psalmist is clear here. What is he waiting on? Look at the text. The Lord, I'm waiting for the Lord. And notice, it is the covenant God for which he waits. And then in verse 6, my soul waits for the one who is in control, that God will work. He will work to forgive, to act, to redeem. And notice the description, more than the watchman waiting for the morning. He says, my waiting for the Lord is waiting with anticipation, waiting with hope. You see, the watchman that was on duty through the night knew that when the morning came, he would be at rest. He knew that when the morning came, he would have joy. He knew that when the morning came, he would be at peace. His job is done. So he is saying, I am waiting with anticipation that God is going to work and he is doing something for his glory. Such hope is necessary. There's a hopelessness that's pervading our culture today. And above all people, we as believers should be able to carry the hope of the gospel in our attitudes, in how we live. Emil Brunner, a Swiss theologian, once wrote these words, What oxygen is to the lungs, such is hope to the meaning of life. Among believers, we should never be pessimistic. There's an optimism that is born of the gospel that should buoy us through the most difficult times and over the depths because it is based upon God's promise. The late Gardner Taylor was a pastor in New York City, but before he rose to prominence, he pastored in rural Louisiana. It was in the late latter years of the Depression, just prior to World War I or World War II. Electricity had just been brought to that area. And the small country church in which he preached was thrilled to have one light bulb. In the middle of the sanctuary, this small clapboard building with one light bulb dangling in the meeting. And it was such a neat thing, they started having night services. You know, church growth. You got something to attract people. We got a light bulb. 
We worship at night now. Well, they're worshiping, and Dr. Gardner's preaching. And a storm comes in, and their one lone light loses electricity. It's dark now. He stops preaching. Their congregation's murmuring. He doesn't know what to do. And there's a guy on the back row that yells out, Keep preaching, preacher. We can still see Jesus in the dark. And the good news of the gospel is this. He still sees us in the dark. We are not lost. Like a watchman waits for the morning, we are not lost because one of his steadfast love. Notice how the psalmist turns now from just talking to himself and making his own declarations. He now turns to the community of faith. He speaks to other believers in verses 7 and 8. Hope in the Lord. Israel, don't give up. Congregation, don't give up. Hope in Him. Why should you hope in the Lord? He gives two reasons. His steadfast love. You see, our hope is not rooted in just some future event. Our hope is rooted in the historic actions of Jesus upon the cross and his resurrection. We can look back at the historical events of the cross and the resurrection to have hope for the future because we know that if God has given us his son, which he has, he's not going to forsake us when times are hard. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, the apostle Paul writes these words, What shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? God, who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We don't fall into despair because God's given Jesus on our behalf. He has given us forgiveness. He's given us the presence of the Spirit. He's given us exactly what we need to live in the world today. And that means that he is plentiful in his redemption. He does not skimp on grace. It means there's no sea from which he cannot lift us. There is no darkness that he cannot illuminate. There is no brokenness that he cannot mend. Now hear me carefully. These are truths that you need to sit in your heart before the storm comes. Don't wait until you are in the depths to figure out what you believe about God. At that point, you'll be blown away by the circumstances. Decide beforehand what you believe and let that set in your heart like concrete. I love the story of a man by the name of John Spillane. Probably never heard of him, but he's one of the unsung heroes of the American military. He's a member of the Coast Guard. To be more specific, he is a retired para-rescuer. What that means is he's one of those few elite soldiers who in the midst of a storm, they don't just run into the storm, they jump into water when the storm's raging to rescue people. 1991, his crew got a call to leave the safety of their base on the coast of Massachusetts. The Halloween storm of 1991 was coming to bear upon the coast, and it was horrible. We know of this storm better through the author Sebastian Younger, who called it the perfect storm, as a hurricane matched and melded with two other storms to create a horrific event off the coast. They were sent out to rescue people that were stuck on a yacht in the middle of this hurricane. As they were trying to get there, the wind was so difficult they burned up more fuel than they anticipated, and the pilot made the announcement. We have to ditch. We can't make it back. The pilot navigated the helicopter in the midst of the winds and the rain to as close as he could to the water and keep safety as the waves rolled back and forth. 
John Spillane said he remembers standing at the door looking out in the darkness catching just a glimpse every now and then of the white caps you have to realize the gravity of this situation he said you'd be looking out and it may look like the water is 20 feet below you but by the time you jump the wave has gone back down and now instead of jumping 20 feet into the water you're jumping 70 feet that's akin to hitting concrete going 55 miles an hour John Spillane jumped he hit the water he said the next thing he knew he woke up and he was swimming I want you to catch that he woke up and he was swimming he was knocked out briefly but when he came to his body was moving add to that the fact that John Spillane when he hit the water broke his left arm and left leg fractured four ribs his spleen had burst and he was fighting internal bleeding they asked him later how in the world did you swim his response we had trained over and over and over again so at that moment my body knew what to do believers are we so ingrained with the gospel that when the storm hits we know now I don't want to paint a rosy picture okay if I'm not already I can tell you in those depths there will be times that you'll start a prayer saying why God I know for me and Jody there have been many a prayers that we've started saying Lord I don't understand why what's going on but we end the prayer by saying but you are God and we trust you Lord you are our hope you see we come back to that because God is gracious and we look to him to know and cling to verses like John 16 in this world you will have trials and tribulations but be of good cheer how can we be of good cheer in trials and tribulations because Jesus Christ says I have overcome the world so our hope is not in us as the psalmist says some trust in horses some in chariots but we trust in the name of the Lord our God we trust in God because we look at the cross the greatest act of evil ever perpetrated and then we see the resurrection in 1933 on direction from Adolf Hitler Heinrich Himmler opened the first concentration camp Dachau this became one of the factories of death that tragically tragically took the lives of so many people there were 32,000 documented deaths at that camp and thousands more undocumented it was freed liberated in 1945 30,000 prisoners were there. In 1960, something amazing happened. Former prisoners returned to Dachau. They didn't come in anger. They didn't come carrying hatred. They came carrying hammers. And just inside the entrance of Dachau, they built a chapel, a place of worship. Ten years later, a Polish priest came and he hung a plaque in the back of the chapel. Dachau was the place where over the gates were written the words, work makes you free. Now in the chapel, the first words you are greeted with are, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. De profundis. There is hope in the depths.
Call out to the Lord. Call out to Him. There is hope. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.